If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to Luke chapter 4 as we continue our journey through the gospel of Luke. Now, this morning in Edmonds at 9 a.m., we had the opportunity for a young family in our church to present a, uh, a newborn child to the congregation as a way of recognizing their stewardship and the role that they have in the life of this little one to raise uh, little Clark up in, with an awareness of the gospel and with a faith in the gospel and leading them towards the love of the Savior. And so mom and dad rallied around them and kind of devoted the child in that direction. And, and then the church responded likewise and committing to rally around them, to help them and to support them in their stewardship. And, and then I had the opportunity to give them a couple of gifts. One of the things I gave them was a uh, children's Bible called The Biggest Story Ever. And it's a story that kind of takes you through uh, the storyline of the scripture, communicating what the Bible is all about in its essence, at the heart of the scriptures. This is the story of our lives. And, and I love the subtitle of that book because the subtitle was How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. And uh, for a little boy named Clark, how the snake crusher is going to bring you back to the garden. You can just hear the, the dramatic music beginning to play as, as he thinks about that adventure story and what it means to, for there to be a snake crusher in the world and who's doing something special. We said last week, we looked at Jesus and we identified him with that passage in Genesis chapter 315 that promises that there's coming from the seed of the woman a snake crusher. Someone who's going to step onto the scene of the world and who's going to, and though the, the serpent, Satan, might bruise his heel, he's going to crush his head. He is the snake crusher. And we recognize how Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise, that he is the seed of the woman. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior. So in last week's passage, we looked at him quoting Isaiah chapter 61 and saying, this is what I'm here to do. I'm here to crush the head of the serpent. I'm here to restore things, not just back to Eden, but I'm here to restore things to better than they even in Eden because in the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be a serpent slithering around. There won't be a serpent there to deceive anyone or to inspire unbelief. All that will be done away with. Away with. And so in earlier in Luke chapter 4, Jesus would quote in verse 18, Isaiah 61, saying, this is what I'm here to do. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus saying, this is who I am. This is the type of thing I do. And he alone has the authority to do it. You know, sometimes the word authority gets a bad rap in our society, in our culture. We don't like talking about authority. We can be quite suspicious of authority because with authority comes power. And we've seen in many ways people in authority, people with power, leveraging their authority and power, not for the betterment of people, but in many ways for their own betterment. And so a lot of times the way authority and power is used in the world, it's used towards captivity and oppression. It's not used towards liberation and freedom and life. The word authority isn't a word that you and I should be afraid of to talk about as followers of Jesus because we know that Christ has the type of authority that our lives need. 
an authority that is being leveraged for our betterment, for our blessing. The Latin root for the word authority is that which allows for growth and life. That's what authority should do. Authority should allow for growth and life. And there's only one person in the universe who has that type of authority. There's only one person in the universe who can actually do that for people like you and me. Someone who can leverage his power for our growth and for our life. And we are seeing his astonishing authority on display here in Luke chapter 4. Because in Luke chapter 4, you have a picture of Jesus doing in action the very things he said he has come to do earlier in the story. Beginning in verse 31, this is what we read. It says, then Jesus went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. So in the previous passage, Jesus declared himself to be the Messiah in his hometown of Nazareth. And things didn't go well for him. People did not want to bend to his authority. They did not want to see him as the anointed one who has come to do all these things. And so there's a large crowd in Nazareth that sought to drive him away. In fact, they rallied in a mob fashion to hurl him off a cliff. But we're told at the end of that passage early in verse 30 that he just kind of passed right through the crowd. And you get this picture of a composed Christ. The picture of one who's in complete control of what's going down in his life story. And this is the one we can trust with our life story because he's in control of ours too. So we can trust him. We can live by faith in him. He just passes right through the crowd. And then he would go on his way. Well, his way immediately leads him to Capernaum. This small uh, fisher, uh, kind of a prosperous fishing town located on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. A couple of miles from where the Jordan River kind of spills into this sea. And then when the Sabbath rolled around, which back in the day, the Sabbath represented Saturday. So on a Saturday, Jesus did what was custom, what was customary to him. He entered the synagogue and he worshiped with those who were pursuing the Lord, who were bending to the scriptures, who were looking for the Messiah. He went to the synagogue to do that with them. And on this particular Sabbath, which was his custom, gathering with God's people, he was given the opportunity to teach. And so he stands up and he begins to speak about the kingdom of God. He begins to talk about who he is as the Messiah. He begins to unpack the Old Testament and various portions of it so that people can hear and to learn about who God is and what his kingdom is all about. And you look at verse 32, it says, they were astonished at his teaching because his message had, here it is, authority. What he was saying was that which could bring growth and life. What he was saying wasn't designed to oppress anyone. It wasn't designed to take anyone captive. It was designed to set people free, to lift them out of their oppression. And as he's teaching with this kind of life-giving authority, everyone was astonished. And that word astonished means to, to strike with a panic or a shock. One writer refers to it as being thunderstruck, that the people were thunderstruck by the message, the authority that Jesus was teaching with. Now, when it comes to the authority of Christ, understand that his authority isn't a derived authority. It's not an authority that he derived from any institution in the world. It wasn't an authority that he derived from any other teachers who backed him or supported him. His authority wasn't derived from any source 
his authority was ingrained into and kind of flowed out of his identity. That he is the unique son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And so he did not teach like the rabbis taught in the synagogue in the first century. Oftentimes when rabbis would stand to teach, they would have to prove their authority. And usually they did that by quoting and citing all types of other sources. And so sometimes the teaching of the synagogues could become this powerful display of intellectual prowess and religious competence so that you could quote and cite sources ad nauseum. I mean, can you imagine you read a book that has lots of footnotes? Those books don't tend to be very fun to read. Well, imagine a talk that is like that where the talk is just filled with citation after citation after citation, someone trying to prove themselves authoritative on a topic through the sources they're citing. But Jesus, when he stood up in the synagogue, what did he do? Well, often he looked at the people and we're told in the Gospel of Matthew that he said, you have heard it said this, but I say unto you. Yeah, you've heard these guys saying these things, but I'm here to give you the definitive word, the final word, what I say unto you. He did not derive his authority from any source because he is the author of life. So he can teach in a way that allows us to grow and allows us to live. He can teach in a way that brings true freedom. And as we've defined before, freedom comes when you and I are able to kind of be who we were created to be. That's where freedom is found. It's doing what you were designed to do. Freedom does not mean autonomy. Freedom does not mean independence. Freedom means to submit to the type of authority that can lead you to growth and life so that you can become who you were originally intended and created to be. Well, this is the kind of authority that Jesus was teaching with. Authority designed to give growth and life. And everyone was astonished. They were astonished because of his authority. But let me ask you, what does authority sound like? What does authority sound like? Well, usually when we talk about authority or we think those who are authority, we kind of, that easily kind of devolves into being authoritarian. And someone who's authoritarian, they tend to teach loudly. And so authoritarians tend to speak loudly about whatever subject matter they're talking about. Talking about the Bible, talking about baseball, they're going to use the same tone, the same tenor, the same frame of speech, trying to take control of people through what it is they are saying. And, but what does authority sound like from the mouth of Jesus? I don't think it sounds loud. I think it sounds lucid. I think it sounds clear. Jesus is a crystal clear communicator. No one was mistaken by what they were hearing Jesus say. This is why they would later try to crucify him. Because he was very clear about his claims to be the Messiah. He was very clear about what he had come to do to bring in the kingdom of God. He was very clear about his power and authority to forgive sins. And the moment he said to another person, I, your sins are forgiven, understand that he was putting himself in the position of God. He was revealing himself to be God, because only God has the prerogative and the right to forgive sins, because sin is ultimately, in the, at the end of the day, an offense against him. And so if you were to offend my wife, I could try to forgive you, but really that offense could only be forgiven by the one who's offended. And so if you offended my wife, my wife would need to be the one to forgive you. Well, when we offend the Lord, only the Lord has the prerogative to forgive sins. And so when Jesus tells somebody, I'm, I forgive you or your sins are forgiven, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to have that kind of authority. That's a big deal. 
And he was very clear. There's no ambiguity in the teachings of Jesus in terms of what it is he's saying. People knew what he was saying. They just didn't like it. Those who rejected his authority did so because he was clear. Not because he was loud. Not because he was an authoritarian. It was what he was saying. His message came with a crystal clear authority. And if I might say the type of teaching we want to take place in the life of the church, the type of teaching we want to have is a, is a clear teaching that if we're going to be clear about anything in the life of the Hellas Church, we want to be clear on who Jesus is. We want to be clear on what Jesus has come to do. We want to be clear on the gospel. And so for 10 years, we've talked about gospel clarity being a chief passion and priority. We want to cultivate gospel clarity because that's where authority is found, the type of authority that can bring growth and life, the type of authority that can set people free. And you see this go down in the passage because as Jesus is teaching this message with authority, that's exactly what goes down. He basically kicks up a hornet's nest of demonic activity there in the synagogue, and a very strange thing happens. You look at verse 33. We read, in the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit who cried out with a loud voice, leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so something about Jesus' clear teaching, the authority that he carried into the room, that he communicated with his message, it aroused uh, something that had, was influencing a man that was gathered there in the synagogue too. And so this unclean spirit, this demonic spirit, cried out and began to engage Jesus. And a little conflict transpires. I say it's little because this demonic spirit did not stand much of a chance with Jesus in the room. But you think about what's going down in this story. It, it might surprise you that a man was in the synagogue and a man who was being tormented, taken captive by an unclean spirit would be present there in the synagogue. But we shouldn't be surprised to see this type of thing happen there. And we should not be surprised to see this type of thing happen in the life of the church. If the serpent can slither in Eden, demonic influence can pop up in churches too. If Judas can walk with the disciples, then it's possible that among us there can be those who are held captive to demonic influence, those who are bound and oppressed by influences that aren't holy influences that aren't clean. And you read through the story of Jesus, you see this type of thing happening a lot. Jesus is constantly kicking that hornet's nest. Everywhere he goes, he's exposing these types of uh, dark strongholds in people's lives. And one of the things I want to just kind of put out there is that we can sometimes get very simplistic in our talk about demonic influence and unclean spirits, be very simplistic when we only have two categories to work with. Traditionally, this is, these are two categories that churches have operated from. They'll say things, well, like a person who isn't a Christian, they could be demon-possessed. But a person who is a Christian, who has a faith in Jesus, who's filled with the Holy Spirit, they can be demonically oppressed. And so one speaks of ownership from the inside out. The other speaks of domination externally, that they're just being oppressed and pushed down. But I think there's a third word that's better suited for what we're talking about. 
A third word that makes us, can tune us into a better understanding of what's going on with demonic influence and these types of dynamics. And it's the word demonization. And demonization is more of a literal translation of, of demon possession that pops up later in the Gospels. And the word demonization, the reason why I like it is because it, it kind of dismantles the distinction we make between those who are Christian and those who are not. And it recognizes that demonic influence can grab hold of someone who is trusting in Jesus as much as those who aren't trusting in Jesus. Demonization speaks to the varying degrees of influence that the enemy can have on a person's life. This is why Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 4, talking to Christians, talking to the church. He's not operating from a simplistic binary category of possession and oppression. He's talking about influence to varying degrees when he says, do not give the enemy an opportunity. Don't give the devil an opportunity. And the word opportunity in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10 is better translated. Don't give the devil a stronghold. Don't allow him to gain influence in your life. And you think about this. Now, this man, he isn't a Christian. He doesn't know Jesus. He's just coming in contact with him for the first time here. But I think in our lives today, it is very possible that we can give the devil opportunities we can give up ground so that he begins to exert influence that is oppressive, influence that, is, that takes us captive in various ways. And you think about how that might happen. Well, one of the ways that we give the devil an opportunity or we, and he begins to exert influence in our lives happens when we harbor unholy attitudes. When you allow bitterness to reside too long in your soul. When anger is something that is popping up over and over and over again, bitterness, anger, resentment, these unholy attitudes, those are the types of things that the enemy preys on. And when he begins to prey on those types of things, he can start influencing you in a way where you're oppressed and depressed and anxious and fearful and stagnant in your spiritual growth. As you harbor unholy attitudes in your heart and your mind, the shackles of, of captivity just kind of tighten around your soul and around your heart. And this is kind of strange because sometimes we, we think about what it means to be demonized. Our, our minds want to run to movies that we've seen, like Exorcist. And we think, if I'm really demonized, and that's what's going to happen. I'm going to be, my head's going to spin around 360 degrees on my shoulders and other weird things are going to happen. And that tends to be our image. But here's a better image for you and I to have. When we talk about demonization and the influence of the enemy uh, popping up in our lives, a better image isn't so much the exorcist. I think a better image is Anakin Skywalker. You see, Anakin Skywalker was one who harbored bitterness, anger, resentment. Anakin Skywalker was a man who entertained the lies Palpatine was feeding him. Anakin Skywalker's transition to the dark side when he became... Dark Vader, it happened not immediately. It didn't happen dramatically. It was a slow burn. And demonic activity and influence in our lives is more like a slow burn. When we harbor lies and we believe them over what Jesus says, when we harbor bitterness and anger and resentment, not confessing those things and turning to Jesus in the midst of those things, when that happens, foothold, opportunities begin to grow for for the enemy. And so I think there's a very real sense in which there are more demonized people in our churches than we realize. 
because it's a slow burn. Anytime we're harboring unbelief or an unholy attitude, that's opportunity, that's foothold that the enemy can take and then lead us in a direction we don't want to go. But the good news is there's one who has more authority than every demonic influence that exists in the world. There's one in this text that we're seeing encouraging his authority to bring growth and life, to bring freedom to a man who is tormented and demonized by this unclean, unholy spirit. He's deceived in some way. He's been harboring things that are unholy for a while now, but he's coming in contact with Jesus. And Jesus is going to leverage his authority by liberating him, by setting him free. Now, when you look at the passage, the demon tries to create a hostage situation. The moment he speaks up, he, he says, leave us alone. Now, us there, I don't think, is a reference to other demons that might be present. When he says us, I think he's referring to himself and the man he's demonizing, the man he's influencing. Leave us alone. This guy's mine. It's a type of hostage scenario where the demon is holding this guy captive, and Jesus is there, and he knows Jesus can set him free, but he doesn't want him to. So he says, leave us alone. But then he goes on in the conversation, and he tries to get a pow- get power up on Jesus. He tries to put Jesus in an inferior position. This is why he would say Jesus' name. So he says in the moment, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And and you might think this is reverential speech where he's referring to Jesus in these ways. But if you look at the first century, the way names are used, when you used another person's name, it was in a sense, it was to put yourself in a superior position over them. It was a power play when you said the name of your enemy or you said the name of someone you were in con- conflict with. You've seen this play out in some of our movies. This is why Captain America would call Winter Soldier by name. Because when they were engaged in that conflict, he eventually said his name and it, and it knocked him off balance. And he realized that something's not right. There, there's something going on here that, that he needed to wake up to and So by saying the Winter Soldier's name, Captain America kind of got a leg up on him in their conflict. Well, this is what the demon is trying to do here, but he's not very successful because he doesn't have more authority and he doesn't have more power than Jesus. And so he says his name, but then look how Jesus responds. It says, Jesus rebuked him, rebuked him and said, be silent and come out of him. And throwing him down before them, the demon came out of him without hurting him at all. A beautiful moment of liberation. The man fell down to the ground. The demon came out of him. And I love the phrase, the man himself was not harmed. He was liberated in an authoritative, powerful way. Jesus leveraging his authority for this man's life, for his good. And so he speaks a word and sets him free. It's not unlike what Martin Luther would write when he wrote that song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and he would pin the lyrics, and though this world with the devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word, one truth, one acknowledgement of Jesus' authority, of his power. One recognition of the Christ, the anointed one who's come to destroy the works of the devil. One word about Jesus can fell powers of darkness. And so all Jesus does is he speak. He rebukes this man and he liberates him from his captivity. 
But then you pick up reading in verse 36, and it goes on. Amazement came over them all, and they were saying to one another, what is this message? For he commands the unclean spirits with authority and power, and they come out. And news about Jesus began to go out to, to every place in the vicinity. Now, if you were to read the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're not going to come to this story this early in the narrative. And the reason for that is that the gospels aren't organized or arranged chronologically per se. They are arranged theologically. They are arranged thematically. And so what Luke is doing by taking this scene and putting it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's showing how Jesus has come to ignite a crusade against the powers of darkness. This is what the Messiah has come to do, to bring liberty to the captives, those who are demonized and influenced and deceived, those who are oppressed and victimized by the influence of the enemy. Jesus has come to set all that right. That the word of his power and authority began to spread and know that his, the word of his power and authority wasn't just spreading among humans. Word of his power and authority was spreading among the rulers and the powers and the, principal, the principalities of this present darkness. The enemy began to tremble in his boots as the enemy began to see that their time was short. And so Jesus here leverages his authority. He displays it by igniting a crusade against the powers of darkness, powers that he came into the world to destroy. This is what 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 is telling us, that the Son of Man, the Son of God was revealed. He came, he appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. But what are some of those works? What are the things that Jesus destroys on our behalf so that we can grow, so that we can live, so we can be free? One is the work of accusation. That, yeah, demonic influence sounds like accusation. If you live in your life under the tyranny of voices that are constantly accusing you of being unlovable, that are constantly reminding you of all the ways that you fall short, that are constantly pushing you down, those voices Jesus has come to destroy. He's come to destroy the work of accusation. He's come to destroy the work of deception. If you are constantly entertaining thoughts that aren't true, that aren't right, that aren't real in the sense that they don't correspond with the kingdom of God, Jesus has come to destroy those works. So if you're deceived in what you're thinking about Jesus and what Jesus thinks about you, know that Jesus has come to launch a crusade against that to crush it, to destroy it. There's the work of intimidation. You know that when you talk about demons and demonic influence, it's very possible for some of us to get scared and start living in the type of fear that is paralyzing, that we're looking for demons under every rock of inconvenience and every rock of frustration that exists in the world. And, and we convince ourselves that the enemy is stronger and bigger than he actually is. And that creates more fear in us. And that fear gives way to what? Hatred, hatred leads to the dark side, Anakin again, you know? What did Jesus come to do? He came to destroy the works of the devil, the works of accusation, the works of deception, the works of intimidation. So to, his, to the accuser, he says, yeah, what you're saying about them might be true, but you don't get the last word in their life. To those who are, to the works of deception, what does he say? He says, look, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I am the embodiment of what is true and what is real and what is right. 
This is why as Christians, we don't just put our faith in a list of propositions. We don't subscribe to a catalog of ideas and, and truth statements. What we do is give ourselves to a person whose name is Jesus. And you become a Christian by giving your life to his authority. Not the authority of a religion, not the authority of a church, but the authority of a person named Jesus. This is what it means to become a Christian. You conform to him. You surrender to him. You bend to him. And he takes over. He takes charge. And he uses his authority to set you free. And then to the works of intimidation, what do we say? Well, we look to the one who would go to the cross and give his life for us. We'd see him stepping out of the tomb, crushing the head of the serpent in the process, declaring to us, my perfect love casts out all fear. When you consider what I have done for you, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to be afraid of. This is the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus displayed through his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so we put our faith in Jesus, the son of God who came to destroy the works of the devil. And one of the ways that we do this every week by rehearsing what Christ has come to do is by reminding ourselves of the gospel. By saying it every week, Jesus stepped into the world to live a life that you and I could never live. He died on the cross to do something special, to do something significant, to do something unique for us. And he rose from the grave to conquer sin, to conquer death, and to conquer Satan himself. And so we remind our souls of that every week because that's how we ward off the influence of the enemy. That's how we dispel his thoughts of accusation and his deceptive lies and his attempts to intimidate and to strike fear in us. We dispel it by reminding ourselves over and over and over again of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. Here's a moment in Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus looks at the disciples and he asks them the question, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter looks at Jesus and says, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. And so Peter named Jesus, not because Peter was trying to get power over Jesus. He named Jesus, recognizing that he must come underneath the, the power and the authority of Jesus. And so Jesus would go on in the conversation and he would say to him, you have confessed rightly. And it is upon this rock that I will build my church. The gates of hell cannot prevail. And he tells Peter that this confession, what you're recognizing about who I am and my authority and my power, what I've come to do, that is the rock upon which I will build my church. Therefore, every Christian is someone who in their life has said, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God. And every Christian, someone who says that about Jesus and then sees how he leverages his identity for our liberation. They see how he leverages his authority for our redemption. And so would tell, Jesus would tell Peter, the gates of hell shall not prevail. You know what gates do, right? If you were to go to a gated community, they designed to keep things in or to keep things out. They're designed to keep things out. And so when Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail, he's reminding the church, you are on the offensive. You can follow Jesus towards dispelling the influence of the enemy. You can bring a better word to people than a word of accusation or a word of deception or a word of intimidation. You can speak a better word. 
you can bring forth the reality of what Christ, of who Jesus is and what Jesus declares about his people. You can see captives being liberated, the influence of the enemy being demolished because you're speaking a better word about a better king appealing to a greater authority than any authority that exists in the universe. And in light of that, the gates of hell won't prevail. The kingdom of God will grow. The purpose of Jesus will prevail when all is said and done. And you and I have the privilege of being a part of that now. We don't have to wait. We can live in light of that beautiful reality now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace? to remember who Jesus is, to remember what Jesus is about. I pray that you would help us to see him and to serve him, help us to trust him. I pray that you, Jesus, would dispel any demonic influence from our lives, that if anyone in this room is deceived right now, I pray that you would bring truth. If anyone is living under the oppressive tyranny of an accusation, I pray that you would speak a better word to them. Tell them they are forgiven. Tell them that they are loved. God, I pray for anyone here who may be afraid and intimidated. I ask that you would give them grace to live with courage and confidence, knowing that it is your perfect love that casts out all fear. We ask and we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.